I'm Verite, and you're listening to Anatomy of an Artist, a podcast about people, the art they create, and the business behind their art. Hello, and welcome back to Anatomy of an Artist. My guest today is producer, songwriter, and artist Eden, the project of Jonathan Eng. Jonathan started producing and songwriting from his family home in Dublin and has since amassed a cult international following. In this conversation, we talked about appreciating making music for its art more than its commercial value, and Jonathan's experience being signed to a major label, and the motivation behind starting his own label to create a more equitable ecosystem for artists. We drop into this conversation when I asked Jonathan where he was finding information when he was first starting out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, 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 I remember starting out and just being on, uh, like forums on the internet, and um, the kind of knowledge you got was was great you could learn from other people's experiences that way but it was like you didn't have established people on internet forums telling you about their you know label x experience or whatever it was all always like minnow stuff with you know independent labels who were screwing over so many people back then as well especially in the electronic world um so i think having having a database like this or at least um like a knowledge base and like a source that people can like access and and just you know, there's sometimes I've met people and they've said something. I'm like, oh, that puts my mind so much at ease because I've been stressing about that for so long. And like, oh, okay, it's not, I'm not the only person who's like freaking out about this or like doesn't know how to like get a handle on that, you know? So it's good. Yeah, I think we're in a world of assumptions. And so I think in my experience, I've always just made assumptions about people and their careers and how they're doing based on what they post, right? And we all tend to post, you know, the best sides of everything. And so, I don't know, I just think peeling back the layers and recognizing, oh, this is a very nuanced process. Being an artist, communicating with fans, building a business, um, it's all really complicated. And what I found interviewing different people is... Everybody has a vastly different experience, but there is a very common thread that kind of ties everyone's experience together. Yeah. So he released a record called No Future. Does that feel like a premonition? Uh, no, uh, maybe. No, <laughs> no, no, no. Because I, I think it's more, it's not, it's not localized like that. Uh, the the concept of the album and what occupies my brain. It wasn't really, oh, I, f- I foresee 2020 being like death for for all creative <laughs> business, business people and like, you know, we're not going to be able to tour or do anything or meet anyone in person or like see our grandparents or parents or whatever. Uh, it was more uh, just a general very pessimistic outlook on the world that I have um I guess it's it's something that I've thought about a lot and it, it stems from 
I was very interested in science when I was in school. So it kind of stems from the nature of, and this is so nerdy, but like the nature of the universe and like a lot of like the laws of thermodynamics and like how things naturally, you know, are are born or are made or and progress and decay and like filter away. So it's, I guess, no future for me was kind of a more broader uh, look at the essential cliche truth that nothing lasts forever i suppose i'm down with that existential crisis like a hundred percent but it was a funny thing to me going from the future bound tour to no future totally <laughs> totally so so i was i was it just stuck my mind i was like the next thing is is going to be called new future and i just knew that for for the last i guess since like 2018 or whatever and I just started seeing it in places like no future would be like scratched on to like, I think one of the first cyberpunk 2070, whatever, uh, <laughs> like trailers had like no future scratched into like an elevator that like was the first thing you saw like in the trailer. I was like, what the fuck? And then in Bandersnatch in the Black Mirror thing, he's like on a bus and like outside the bus is like spray painted on like a wall, like no future. And like, I was like, why is this everywhere? Uh, and I was so close to like abandoning the title and calling it something else. And then I eventually came to the conclusion that, you know, this was my idea before I saw those things. And if it ends up being a zipgeisty thing by accident, then so be it. The idea is just the idea. You know, I can't really go and flip flop because of random things that are out of, con- out of my control. Yeah. And I think it's such an appropriate title, especially for this year. I mean, there is a future, but there's also no future. It's a a dichotomy that I hold dear. Um, (laughs) How many albums have you created and shelved? I saw on Twitter that you started over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's actually one. Uh, I'm definitely someone who creates things in a, in a almost direct or linear way. So I don't make like a hundred songs and then whittle it down for an album or an EP or a project. Um, I kind of like take one step and then see how that goes. And sometimes I'll be making like three, four, five, six, seven, whatever things at the same time, but they're all influencing each other and they all kind of fit together with, with the scope of a project in mind. So I don't really make things to scrap. Yeah, this year I was just like working... And I was just getting stressed out about what I was working on. So it's like, you know what? I'm just going like, to put this in the bin and have a blank slate because I'm in no rush. There's, I released an album this year, so like, I'm fine. Like, I'm in no rush to be like speeding out another one or as much as that would be nice to like be like, wham, bam, like just Brockhamptoning three albums out in a year. If it's not coming, it's not coming. Or if it's not feeling, if you're not... If it doesn't feel like the best shit you've ever made or getting you like really excited about it, then just try something else. And maybe I'll come back to it or maybe something I make will shed everything I've made before in a new light. But it's been a really, really good decision to essentially put that stuff off my mind and into a little cupboard somewhere. It does feel like this year has been a pause in a way in a lot of in a lot of areas, especially creatively, where... I never would have dedicated the amount of like time to writing and production because I would have been touring because I would have been distracted by collaborations, et cetera. And so now is like this perfect time, at least for me, to shift 
into that very like homebody state. But you do all of your writing and production alone. And so I guess what's the importance of being home to you and nesting when you're in that creative process? Honestly, for me, that's kind of everything. Like I, I started making music in that way. Like I would just sit at home and like make things on my computer by myself. Like I'd come home from school and just do that until like midnight or like one or two and get up for school the next day, do school and come home. And like everything was a race to get back and just sit at home and chill and make music um, or like waste my time and pretend I was making music. <laughs> um, but I think this year, like you said, has kind of gifted me with a, a pause and a, a, a length of time that I would have never allowed myself to have. I think, you know, people like me or you who are, who are very independent and self-driven people, don't let yourself take breaks. You don't get to be where you, you're sitting or where I'm sitting without having some kind of drive like that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the first lockdown when everything went, everything got shuttered at the start of the year, like March. I spent four months like at my parents' place in in Dublin, which accidentally just amazing quality time to have with my family that I again would have never given myself like four months of doing nothing and just taking walks and like sitting around and chatting and playing like untold amounts of PlayStation. And I was making stuff as well. I mean, we did the whole. My label did a compilation album. There was there was definitely days where I, I was staying up working instead of sleeping, and I was really pumped about everything. And then. After that, I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to not do that for a little while. And I think because there were no distractions, there was no tour to like give me a deadline like, oh, in like six weeks, I've got to like go and be on the road and I can't work on this anymore. It put my creation in a place that I hadn't been in a, in a little while just to have so long and, and no end in sight of doing like nothing but sit around and make things. It, I guess it kind of put a bit of subconscious clarity in my vision in terms of what I was creating. So as I said, it kind of got to the point like a month ago where I was just like, I'm not really that pumped about the shit I'm making. And like, you you know, like when you sit down and you play some music for, for someone for the first time, that tells you like how good it is, because even though they, they don't need to give you any opinion or not, but, someone sitting there in the back of your room or or like beside you or whatever while you play them something you've been working on uh gives you a complete new look at what you've been making and it was became very apparent to me that I wasn't like showing them music that I was super gassed about or like this is the best shit on the planet and I was like okay well fuck that I'm gonna just go and make something that makes me feel like that so I decided to scrap it um but again, if if things hadn't been cancelled, I would have had like some kind of self-imposed deadline on myself and just made the music I was doing before work. And there are songs in there in that body that was scrapped that I absolutely adore and mean the world to me. So I think it's personally for, for that project, I think it's mainly a sonics issue. It just wasn't connecting whatever way I was recording or producing things or I don't know, maybe even just a sound palette. It just wasn't working. So I think having the last few weeks of aimlessly making things again has actually been really really good and I'm really excited about music again and it's happened super quickly uh so like as I go down this rabbit hole maybe I'll just find something that makes the old shit better and be able to bring it forward but 
Awesome, we'll see. There's definitely there's definitely like a beauty to both modes of creation. There's a beauty to the self-imposed deadline because that spurs a completely different type of creation. And then there's a beauty to I'm just creating to creating. And I feel like they just, I don't know, they, they spur different ideas. Like I want to go back to like young Johnny in Dublin because I read that you right. you started writing by writing essentially new verses over Eminem tracks. So I'm really curious, what was your favorite track to write over? Uh, I distinctly remember doing a, a whole, like the whole entire song of Mockingbird, uh, but just like stealing the flows, but just putting new words on it. What else? What other ones did I do? Any Slim Shady? No. Eminem is so good. Oh, totally. That, yeah, that era of, of music was was pretty special. Yeah, I, I was just taking other people's songs and putting my own words on them and not changing them in any way. It was very funny. But uh, yeah, I was listening to like Eminem and like The Game and Lil Wayne and probably like Rihanna as well. And then like the most incongruent things. It's funny. It is nice to, to go back at the music you listen to at like aged, you know, 7 or 10 or 12, 15 every once in a while because it's music that if you found now, you'd be like, nah. But like when you listen to the stuff you used to like, you're like, this is still so good. And you try and show people and they're like, Bleh. yeah, you know? it's, <laughs> it's all funny. about the emotional attachment that you have to something. But I guess when you were younger, what was your idea of success? Uh, I was a massive, massive Michael Jackson and uh, Freddie Mercury and Queen fan when I was a kid, like very small, probably before before Eminem phase. I used to just like my dad got me um like a fake iPod called an iRiver and it was like, <laughs> like an actual brick it was just a black brick with a screen on it uh, and I used to just listen to like I didn't even get to pick the music that was on it I was like Michael Jackson's and some Queen and stuff and you, so I just would like listen to whatever Queen songs Michael Jackson songs he decided to get on that over and over again I would just sing them over and over again I completely forget your question now Jesus <laughs> it's just your idea of success my idea of success was stadiums yeah, it I was, was the like, great. Yeah, be a massive pop star, super rock band, whatever. That is like success in music. You know, win awards, win Grammys, win, I don't know, plaques. <laughs> I don't know. I guess back then it was like the heyday of ridiculous amounts of sales. Like I remember X Factor would come on and it'd be like, this is Mariah Carey singing like on the finalist as a guest, whatever. She sold like 150 million albums or something. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it literally doesn't exist anymore, even for Mariah Carey or even for yeah. the biggest artists. Yeah. When did you discover music production and what was your first rig? Like, what were you producing on? What equipment did you have? I guess I discovered it through my brother. So my family got an iMac when I was 12-ish, probably. And then at some point, my brother realizes that GarageBand comes free on iMac and he starts like messing around with it. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. And I was going straight into like the Apple loops and making like techno, really, really, really bad techno. <laughs> but he was like straight into like MIDI and making his own orchestral kind of arrangements and and passages, I suppose. And 
I didn't realize that's what he was doing. I thought he was also just using the loops. And then one day I was like, how do you make stuff that's like so good? And he was like, oh, like put in the notes. And I was like, what? Uh, and then that was it. I was like completely obsessed with like putting in the notes now and like making my own actual songs instead of just loops. And I kind of like got more and more and more and more swept up in it. And especially I think around that time, 13 or 14, the Skrillex Scary Not Monsters Nice Sprites thing came out and just exploded. And everyone was talking about like dubstep and electronic music. And I was like, oh man, this is so sick. And I was really pumped about it because I was playing in bands with a couple of my friends from school at the time. And this was now a, a way I could make an entire song without anyone else. <laughs> and I was just hooked. For a long time, there wasn't really a crossover between like the songs I would write just playing guitar or playing piano or even in, the, in like the bands I was playing in and the music I was making on my computer or the family computer that I had stolen. Hmm. Um, so it, that was like distinctly electronic music only in like random attempts at like making an acoustic song or I think it took four five years from that point to really be like oh I can do songwriting and production in the same universe I don't know why that was so separate for me but I've talked to a couple of people actually who had the same experience well because it's like two sides of your brain almost it's like one is digital one is analog I was the same way I played in bands and I didn't realize that I could make any sort of electronic music because it was playing live instruments in a studio. And somehow right. those were such right. separate ideas for me for so long. No, I had the same thing. One of my friends who I was in the band with, his dad was like, owed money by some, some guy. I forget what it was. So he was like, well, I own this like studio. So what about instead of paying you back, I'll like give you free studio time for your kids' bands? And we're like, Great. yeah. So I had the go to a studio experience when I was like 14. And the guy who was working with us was definitely like, these f- spoiled idiots, like don't know what they're doing. Like they're really bad, the kids. So like I had that making music is being in an expensive studio and like recording instruments and like doing loads of takes and some weird bearded man like telling you what to do (laughs) (laughs) yeah some old bearded man I mean it was literally the same experience for me yeah what was your first release so you're sitting and you're making um you know primarily electronic music eventually realizing that you can actually record a guitar and incorporate that Uh, but what was your first release where did you release it Depends what you mean by release. And this is where the internet starts to blur the lines because I was putting music on SoundCloud from the age of 15, 16. Um, I mean like the first thing you uploaded to the internet. Uploaded, yeah, totally. Yeah, so that was... Oh, I can probably find it on my computer right now. Actually, I won't I won't find it. I'll, I'll just... won't dive into like the history of the internet. But uh, Send it to me. I want to I wanna hear the it was, first thing. Uh, the first thing I ever uploaded was a song called Shut Your Mouth, uh, which sampled some skateboarder being like arrested or like at least accosted by like some like mall cop. <laughs> and the guy was just screaming at the skateboarder and I thought that was like, oh, that was really cool. So I sampled it into some like terrible electro like EDM like song uh, and I uploaded that to YouTube and then made like a couple of fake accounts and commented on my own video being like oh man this is like this is really promising you know you, <laughs> you're gonna go somewhere and I replied to my own comment being like oh yeah thanks man that means a lot um and I don't think I had like any views um 
and then maybe and I guess my releases at first were quite sparse so like maybe half a year later I put I was making stuff all the time and just making private links and sending them to my friends or like just sending them the mp3s and being like what do you think of this um and then it was there was definitely some one or two public uploads before it but the I think the oldest upload of my SoundCloud uh is a track called Summer's End that maybe oh was that when I was 15 or 16 so that's like 2012-ish, 11, 12-ish. Um, and I think there were songs before, but I just deleted it at some point, which is kind of annoying because I I don't, don't really delete stuff from SoundCloud. I just made it private. So it's I kind of have a nice like library. Um, you have a full history. Yeah, yeah, of, of my kind of musical progress, I suppose. Um, but that was, again, just, just putting stuff on SoundCloud. And I, I gave up on YouTube after that first attempt as well. I, I didn't post anything to YouTube. And after that, I was just like, oh, I'm just going to put it on SoundCloud. And was there was there a release or upload, I guess we'll say? Because you're right. There is a difference between like a proper release. Um, but I guess, was there a song that you put on SoundCloud early on that felt different, that gained more traction, where you felt kind of a shift between doing this as like as casually as you were yes but not till later on so like those first uploads were quite like producery and like no singing just beats and stuff um i think there was an ep i released called entrance god i almost that almost slipped my mind um and i sang on two of the songs on it or maybe more um but that was maybe the first time where I realized, oh, people are more interested in that than like whatever beats I make. So I kind of just started exploring that more. And then there was some song, I remember, yeah, I think it was Jason Ghost. I put out a song and it got like to 10,000 plays. And I remember thinking, thinking like, that's nuts. Yeah. That's so many plays. When you're counting the number up every yeah, day, you're yeah, refreshing yeah. and you're like, it's, it's 5,500, it's 5,600. Yeah, yeah. There's no substitute, I think, for the first time that something you release gets traction and you get to track that number. Yeah, I mean, and so, but that was the, the wild thing for me was on SoundCloud. So I, I, I started realizing like people were really into all these songs that I thought that no one would like. So like fast forwarding a little bit, I put out the last few songs I put out before I changed my name from the Eden Project to Eden. It was a weird vocoder thing, a cover of Blank Space, um, the song EXO, which has haunted me forever. Um, <laughs> and there's, I think there's four or five, there maybe was one or two more. But EXO, I, I was just like, oh, this is just a pop song. Everyone's going like, to be like, this is so cheesy and shit. Yeah. And it just didn't stop. As uh, from that whatever day that came out in like 2015 no 2014 i think uh to to now it it, it just has never stopped didn't uh, it just go gold yeah that that song exo and sex went go, both went gold this year um which is mind blowing because uh i was just i i'm kind of making those songs without consideration for the future but they're both uh, there's a lot of my music that is played more now than it was when it was released and that seems a bit obvious but but as you as you develop as an artist like you release something and everyone listens to it like the first day and then it slowly like tapers off after that so to have music that 
doesn't tape well it probably tapered off and then just it started resurging again and then hasn't stopped is is pretty nuts well i guess that's a good segue to your fan base because i feel like that is probably a result of having genuine fans who are gonna discover you and then go back rapidly through your back catalog right because they're invested in you as like an artist and not just you as a song if that makes sense and so you have i mean i've toured with you your fans are amazing and they're real music lovers and they're so just i don't know they're attentive and you can tell that they want to be fed um weird way to say that but you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) yeah i get you everyone wants to be fed and so i guess that fan base obviously started pre-proper distribution on SoundCloud and the internet, but I'm curious what steps you took consciously or unconsciously to kind of nurture those relationships. I've always taken a very ear to the ground approach to the music that I make. So I like read a lot of the comments, like the things people tweet me. I think now where I am in life now it's probably not as relevant anymore but growing like I would read every single comment and I would go and find other people's uploads of my music and like read the comments and I don't know why but I was just always driven to do that so I do wonder if that put me on a very similar wavelength or at least kept me in, in tune with the people who are like listening to my music yeah I don't know it's just been a lot of years of putting things on the internet now um so yeah when when someone is interested or like they get hooked in by whatever piece of music they hear they there's a lot to delve into and find and i guess because of that they can get a pretty good picture of what um this thing is about i think it kind of goes back to your creative process of that you write in a very linear way, right? You're you're writing as a journey for a project. And so I also think that from a fan perspective, that's probably really helpful because you're not just, you don't just want to listen to the first three songs because that's like reading the first three chapters of a book. Like maybe you're going to feel unfulfilled and you're not getting to the climax where the bass drops, et cetera. Like you want to, uh, yeah. like you, like you want to get the full <laughs> yeah. story because you want to get the full satisfaction of the album. That's my own pontification. But that's what I love about your music so much is it's, it is a journey and it is cinematic and one song leads you into the next. So you don't make records that you skip through. You make records that you kind of dive into, which I love. Thank you. You're welcome. That's really nice. Um, yeah, I, I kind of just have a pet peeve of like when I find music and then they'd be like, oh, this is so good. And then you listen to their like album or project. And I'm a big album or EP or whatever listener. I don't really use playlists. I just put on someone's album that I want to listen to. And when you hear like one like song that's really good and then like five kind of versions of that song that are less good and you're like, okay. You can tell when there's filler and you can tell when there's intention. Totally. So what was your first introduction to the music industry proper? I had a couple... uh maybe like one or two releases on like independent internet things. So I, I like released a, a song and then maybe an EP with Play Me Records, which at the time I thought were great because a couple of the electronic musicians 
I listened to had also had a, had like early releases with them. So I was like, oh yeah, I'm kind of like following that path. Um, and then I did some, uh, like just through like singing on, like featuring on other people's songs. I, I had some releases on like Monster Cat as well in terms of like internet music. Um, but the first like proper industry stuff was after I changed my name to Eden and dropped end credits. Um, and when that EP came out, I just started getting hit up by, I I, th- I got hit up by every record label that I, I knew existed. Uh, <laughs> you know, various A&Rs, um, lawyers, public- publishers, uh, managers. Uh, I definitely kept a list of all of them somewhere and it's very long. Uh, and that was pretty nuts. Um, so I, it kind of went zero to hundred. Like it, that one summer, I was also Meek Mill sampled one of my songs, uh, r- completely randomly. Uh, so because of that, I had been introduced to a lawyer who like took care of like organizing that like contract and stuff for me. So when all those emails from like the industry people started coming in later that summer, I was like, "Hey, uh, can you help me with this? Because I don't know who any of these people are." And she was such a helping hand through that whole thing because you'd be like this is this person like they're important that person just like ex's assistant like they'll probably if they really wanted to see you like they'll probably come over and then invite you to the label and that'll be like the real meeting or whatever and just like guiding me through that but yeah that was a big uh thrown in the deep end moment what was the feeling associated with starting to take those meetings and weighing offers and kind of trying to figure out what the right move was for you. I kind of had already decided before before I was meeting a lot of these people. So an example of this is the one of the first people who got in touch with me was my current manager, Michael George. And he emailed me and I, I remember being like, oh, I'll reply to him tomorrow. Like this, that's how empty my email box inbox was. I was like, oh, I'll reply to him tomorrow. So I replied to him the next day, and he emailed me back like immediately and be like, "Yo, can, yeah, great, can uh, we like jump on a call today?" Uh, I was like, "Today? That's forward." <laughs> um, and I was like, "Okay, sure." Uh, we jumped on the call, and he was a really nice guy. But I ended the call being like, "Look, um, I mean, it's really cool that you're interested, and I'm I'm glad you like the music, but I don't think I want to be." working with a manager or a label for at least another six to 12 months. I was just kind of very content with how I was working, I suppose, by myself at the time. Um, I like didn't really feel like there was any management. As, as I said, I was getting like w- one or two emails like a week, maybe. I don't know. There was nothing really to manage. Uh, and the music was out already. And I was like, oh, I'm... I'm good. So I was meeting a lot of these people with a kind of like, I'm the shit, impress me kind of um, mindset. It's a good mindset to have, especially in the position that you were in. And I think that being in a position of, um, I guess, having leverage in in who you work with is really important. And that's probably a good point to bring up because at that point, like I had just dropped out of uni. Uh, I did like half a year of studying science. I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to do astrophysics and be an astronaut. Um, yeah, but uh, the I just dropped out, and I remember uh, convincing my parents to 
be okay with me dropping out and knowing that like if they kicked me out i could hit the switch on my music that was all free even end credits that ep that like um garnered all the interest was all free and i was like even if i got kicked out i can flip the switch put it on itunes and i'd be able to support myself so i was absolutely in a luxurious position um not everyone who's like approached by industry people waving deals or whatever has the opportunity to be like i'm uh able to support myself and fine and i don't need this uh yeah it's interesting though because i was in a similar position i mean different details but i do think that waiting and and i really admire your patience kind of in that beginning of like i don't need this right now like i don't need the these other team members i don't need these other things to continue doing what i'm doing and to continue growing at my rate right and i yeah, think yeah you don't want to take on more than you're capable of early on because that creates this whole domino effect of expectation that I think is really limiting and detrimental to a project as a whole. Yeah, I just didn't really know. I didn't feel like I needed anything. I was just making music and putting it out and it was going, it was at that point still going better. I mean, actually, even to this day, I think all the music I've put out so far has been doing better than ever before. So like, that's a another luxurious position to be in. Like, uh, and I, but I did, I did like, so I had maybe 10 weeks of like meeting multiple people every day like every day of the week having multiple meetings phone calls a lot of people would just call me out of the blue as well wouldn't even set a time they'd be like hey is this jonathan i'd be like yeah and they'd be like this is blah 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 from blah 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 blah, blah record label i'd be like okay and he's like blah 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 gave me your number i was like okay <laughs> what's going on uh but I, I i got overwhelmed and i think like a month after like two months of that i was like I, I remember texting michael and be like okay this is a lot maybe it's time to like start working together uh yeah and to help just deal with all this madness um and he yeah and that was one of the best decisions ever mm -hmm. so said no to a lot um one or two people like just kept chasing it like chasing like trying to get a deal and then eventually it was like yeah okay we'll try the next thing with you um and this is astralworks this is astralworks yeah um and i've a lot of love for the people i've worked with but where i am right now uh i don't feel like i have ever felt like a big value add by by signing with people i mean they'll give you a lot of money up front so like okay it's a loan basically yeah they're a bank yeah and people say that before my lawyer would tell me that before like i signed with anyone they're like you need to think of it as a bank i'm like okay but a bank that once you pay them back takes 80 percent of of everything you make that yeah. that's not that's not really clear enough or that wasn't clear enough to me beforehand and also that would be fine if they like katie perryed you or like you know dua lipa you and like made you a massive massive or like derma kennedy or whoever like yeah. made you a massive 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 selling thing i just love but, the like, use of that as a verb dua lipa you <laughs> yeah i mean 
there are certain artists and 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 certain uh situations where a label like that is absolutely the thing you need you can't be ariana grande without that system in place yeah um well even like halsey started on astral works as well and like i mean she's huge yeah exactly yeah yeah that would be worth the percentage i suppose if they take you from like like i suppose where me and halsey were when we signed astral works was like uh million plays i suppose on on our on our songs yeah you guys were on this on the same plane but you just said a lot of really great things that i just want to break down mostly for the people listening is like one taking one step back to management um i get a lot of people asking me well when should i bring a manager on how hard should i look for a manager and i feel like you kind of confirmed my theory on this it's you shouldn't bring a manager on until there's something to manage, right? You shouldn't bring yeah, on a manager. Uh, pe- people, people have this idea that a manager is, they're like, you get the manager and then they're going to be working every day. But a manager is literally someone to like take care of things so so it's not on your plate. So th- there's a misguided idea that like you need to go and get a manager and that's going to lift your their music. It can be a lift, but your music needs to be lifting anyway. And then that then you'd think of it as like a like a extra rocket booster or something. Yeah, the lift has um, to come from you and your hustle yeah. and, and your output. And then they can take a ball that's rolling and place it in the right places and get you the proper exactly. distribution and build the yeah. proper team. But also also you, you going to find a manager is 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 not gonna give you the desired outcome. Uh, I mean, it could. You you could you could end up sending music or having someone who like knows knows a manager, or whatever, send pass on music that they are like, oh my god, this is some of the best best stuff ever. Yeah, uh, the exception. Most most likely, you'll end up with someone who's like, oh yeah, this is kind of cool. That's something you need to be aware of. You know, there's there's people who will say like, I I can make you this but you have to like follow my lead and like I'll put you in the right rooms and get you with the right producers and stuff. But if you want to make like weird alternative music and someone's trying to squeeze pop music out of you or whatever, that that would drive me insane. I wouldn't be able to do that. I guess what's your balance between commercial viability and artistic integrity? Do you, do you tailor anything you do to the commercial success of it or what is your balance there? Um, the last couple of years, I had no interest in commercial viability. I was just making things to make things. Um, I think the only time I ever really released something and thought like this is going to like do well commercially was the I Think You Think Too Much of Me EP. And that was because that was like an exploration of pop music for me and like you can hear it in the track listings it's like basically four different types of pop songs everything since then has just been like i'm making this to make it and for it to be whatever the idea needs to be rather than or and without those comment connotations or commercialization pressures but also i think now having done that for a little bit i, I definitely have a desire to uh make music that I used to call it like sad when, when I was what 18, 19, I used to call the music like sad bangers. <laughs> like I don't want to like make a, well, like a pop banger. 
When you signed to Astroworks, did you feel like there was an increased pressure to kind of conform to, you know, music that will perform well? Or did yes. you? Yes. Yes. And I, I never would have said it, but yes, absolutely. Was was it external pressure or was it just internal pressure of entering into this larger system? Yeah, that was totally on me. Like no one, that was the luxury of where I was at the time. Even when I did sign something eventually to Astroworks, um, no one could ever tell me, you need to make this. Uh, I <laughs> like, I was very adamant that like, this is my shit. I'm making it. Uh, and like even like even like the mixing and mastering, I remember uh, Jeremy, my A&R, like he, he was like, OK, well, what about like mixing and stuff? I was like, yeah, OK, we could try it. And he sends it because apparently, um, God, what's his name? Mike Crossy, the guy who does 1975, was like very interested in my project. And he like sent it, sent sex, the song sex to uh, Crossy to mix it and Crossy mix, mixed it and sent it back. I was like, no, this is shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and like that was as close as I could get to like letting anyone else like influence any part of the create creative thing. But there was for sure self-imposed pressure, I, I, I suppose, that like this, this needs to work. It needs to go in a commercial sense. So you talked about like the value add of, of Astral Works and the major label and like, you know, major labels are essentially banks, right? They are giving you an advance, which is essentially a loan, which can fund your life essentially, right? You're taking part of that for yourself. And then they're providing budgets, essentially marketing budgets, tour support budgets, to the things that you need. And, you know, that sort of capital is is necessary for growth, right? At some point, you do need to invest in the lights that you need for your tour, etc. Um, but I guess you talked about a little bit how the back end plays out and how it's the value out up front of the capital isn't necessarily worth the back end split of right standard major label deals can be anywhere from once you're fully recouped on that initial investment you're sitting and getting 12 to 20% of your work in perpetuity in a lot of cases. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, until the end of time. Yeah, until the <laughs> end of time. And so are you glad that you kind of stepped into that system, had that experience, and have kind of stepped out with new knowledge? Do you have any regrets of signing? I don't know. It's hard to regret something that has worked. So like, I didn't feel like they lifted my music to the next level, uh, in a, in a commercial sense or in an XYZ sense. Um, I, I, maybe, maybe I'm a little bit jaded and biased by a couple experiences as well. Maybe like they did do more than I, I probably, uh, my memory gives them credit for, uh, but I, yeah. And it's, it's difficult to be like, that was awful because they were really lovely people and like I had a great time working with them I just it's hard to consider where I would be if had I not done that uh because it would it would it could look the exact same or it could be wildly different um I think an another angle to this is is I've never had real need for Budgets. I suppose, 
like uh, the first tour I ever did, the end credits tour. Uh, I think I lost like fifty thousand dollars on it. And at that at that time, I was like, "That's fine." Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, like we basically did did the tour. Uh, it was like seven shows. Uh, lost a ton of money. Uh, all the shows were sold out which was amazing that was i mean that was the first time I, I really was like oh my god these are real people listening to my music because the internet makes it just like feel like a statistic um but i lost so much money and i remember being like i have just enough money to pay like my manager my manager basically was just we're just using his credit card like for the flights and for everything so i had just i'd like just enough money to pay him back uh and i was like okay cool that's fine I guess, wait, maybe that was because of the Asterix deal. God, that is a funny thing. Because in my memory, it's like, oh, yeah, no, it was fine. But then was it just the advance from Asterix that allowed me to be able to pay him back? <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's something you're missing here in the sense of when you say I lost $50,000 and it was fine, there has to be like another, there has to be some hope at the end of that tunnel. I'm trying to think of when I did that deal. Because, no, no, essentially because I had all my music on Spotify and it was it was streaming quite well. So I remember getting my first Spotify payment, like notification, or not payment notification, but notification that any of my music had made money and it was like mm-hmm. $40. And I was like, oh, sick. And then the next one was like 500. I was like, what? And then the next one was like 1,000. I was like, oh my days. I want to speak to that. Yeah. Because I think, right, we've we've essentially gone through this massive transition from album sales to streaming, right? It's like we're right. not selling 150 million records like Mariah Carey did. Everything has shifted. But I think that at least when I was starting out, which was similar time, like 2014, 15, I think 15 for me, um, there was such a misconception that streaming doesn't pay. There's no money in this. The music industry is dying. Um, everyone is fucked. And I waited to sign for circumstances outside of my control. The label dropped out day before I signed, which is the best thing that ever happened to me. And then that put me in a position where I started getting these streaming payments. And the fir- it was the same. It was like the first one was two grand and I'm like oh my god that's for me Whoa. that was everything I was just like two thousand dollars you know how many days I have to wait tables to make two thousand dollars and yeah you know but up into the point where I was seeing double digits and more and more and I was like oh this is just on a delay this is on a six to eight month delay that so that was the thing you you put I remember so I never had I was never part of the discourse like Spotify doesn't pay artists or anything because my music wasn't on Spotify when it came out. I never sold anything. Even when I put stuff on Spotify, it wasn't for sale anywhere. So I just saw Spotify growing. I was like, oh, this is like like SoundCloud. I I treated it like SoundCloud. I was like, this is like just that's just where people are listening to music. So I might as well just have it there. And then I put it on. And then six months later, you get your first like notification i was like 42 dollars great that's better than no dollars and then the next one and then it was like month by month after that it was just going up and up and up and up and up i was like oh jesus this is like a, a serious thing and 
So for all the flack that I would give Spotify now, uh, it completely enabled my music career because I got to the point where I was like, I could drop out and my parents could kick me out of my house or my, my parents' home and I, I could support myself and it would be fine. And I got to the point where because I was living at home, I didn't have any expenses. I could lose a ton of money on, on a tour and be like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's okay. Uh, and I never really thought of it as like the, it, it's like the bad guy in the room for, for so many people. It's hard for me to out, outright say this is completely broken when it, it facilitated my, I guess I'm, I guess me and people like me and you are, are just quite lucky because we had people listening to us a lot. So yeah. I guess m- mostly I should thank the fan, <laughs> like the people who listen to my music, than yeah. Spotify paying me like a thousandth of a cent or a cent or whatever. I think it's a really nuanced conversation. And I, f- and I do feel like, I feel like in general, especially on social media, we have lost any sort of ability for nuanced discourse, right? You are either totally. on one yeah. side of an issue or you are on the other. And I, I, I just can't, my mind doesn't work like that. I live in the middle and I crave seeing all sides of a situation and then doing an analysis. And so when I look at the Spotify thing, Spotify isn't evil, but that doesn't mean that Spotify isn't doing the right thing in some ways. So yes, there should be advocacy for more fair and equitable payouts to songwriters and artists, you know, and a reevaluation of how Spotify is reinvesting the money that they make, et cetera. You know, the fact that major labels essentially own Spotify in in some capacity and so there's some you know semblance of like oh there's probably some payola going on there but that being said you also have to navigate the systems that you have and Spotify exists because it is really convenient for listeners and this is how people consume music now and you can't really discredit that because we're not going back to the old way it's never going back And so all we can do is kind of move forward and try and make change for the future that is positive and beneficial while navigating the systems that we do have in place. And I think that, you know, I'm grateful to streaming and and Spotify in particular, right, because they have enabled me to remain an independent artist full time for the past six years, which is kind of insane when you think about. Yeah. So it's like it's this double edged sword but I think there's definitely this middle ground of like how do we build a better future and how do we you know work within the systems that we have but I guess to like transition this so you were signed to Astral Works we talked about kind of the value add and how essentially it's not like there are phenomenal people who work at these labels but if you're not kind of playing if you're not getting Dua lipa or Halseyed, right? And like thrown into the ether and stratosphere, it does become this question of, is the sacrifice of the control of maybe, you know, the back end income worth what they're putting up front? And you seem to think that for a project like yours, where maybe it's not, the goal isn't this massive commercial success, it didn't add up. 
I think uh, it depends, as you said, on your personal values, because some people you see a lot in, in hip hop uh, is the whole goal is to make money and they're, they're not too faced about that. They're like, I'm, I'm, I'm here to, to get the bag. And so like they'll sign their stuff for like X amount of money. And that's, that is winning for them. And that is completely valid just as me thinking like if I did that, I would have a lot of money, but I wouldn't own the music I make. Like that's a line that I crossed once and I will never cross again. So yeah, for me, it's, it's just, that's, I mean, that's what the whole label thing is now as well. I'm just like trying to make a, a fair ecosystem of music where, where like to lift people and, and, and music that I believe in. Um, and just to make a like a community of musicians to push things forward in in a in a art sense um it's always been about expression and and the art form for me so uh and i mean i can't deny the the commercial aspects to it you know you there's yeah. a you you sell your music like i'm not uh i'm not blind to it and there is a way to make that work for you, but it, it should always, at least for me, in my opinion, and what drives me is it always serves the, the art. Uh, so like, I don't know if someone's listening and they're like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm down with making pop music and I'm, I'm down with, or I'm down with not, I'm, let's say I'm down with making like the weirdest music ever, but I'm also down with making a lot of money. Like go ahead, like yeah. chase money, make really weird shit, but like be aware of the consequences as well. Um, and like try and I guess just having a good understanding of what you want from things is important well I think you just touched on a lot and I think that this idea of creating a more equitable ecosystem right that does balance art and commerce because when you when you put money into something you're automatically kind of merging the art with the business but doing it in a way that maybe is a bit simpler and more fair with maybe, I don't know, a more genuine intent. And I think your shift into creating 1995, do you call it 1995 or do you call it MXM XCV? Yeah, actually most people just call it MCM, or most people just call it MCM, but meaning MCM XCV. Um, ah. But yeah, I, I, did, I did call it uh, 1995 for a little bit. I guess now it's kind of just the letters. No, it's just yeah, it's, a, it's just a name. <laughs> yeah, you can just refer to it as the label. Yeah, that's true. Is there any sort um, of like unexpected challenge or learning curve to to starting this, or are you just kind of taking it step by step? I guess this is kind of the allure, and it's it's like a cloud from the early days, like the allure of record labels and thinking like like how some people would consider a manager. Like once it gets signed, then it's all gonna work and like everything i try will be a great success and like you know then then that's it you don't need to worry about anything in the same way that i thought that setting up a label and and getting people who are really good at their jobs to work this music in this way and like take control of this role and do that would instantly be like this uh teleporter from like here to like way up there and like having a great time and having great success it's not there's there's no there's no replacement for for like organic 
uh growth you can you can't skip steps like things can't go from a to z without stopping at least once or twice in the middle um so that was definitely a learning curve i thought i could i thought that it would be a little bit more like hitting a switch i was like once i have like these people who i think make sick music using the same kind of infrastructure and teams that i'm using surely everyone's just gonna like go way up mm-hmm. um and it, it's a it's a longer more intricate and uh just uh um a slower process than i thought it would be so that's that was definitely a learning curve for sure what is your ultimate vision for the label? Is it to be kind of revered as an iconic XL or Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't I was talking about this the other day. Um I don't really mind about outside perception. Uh I would just like to do things like like an like uh or even like you know vegans label like the please make it ruin stuff um or year zero 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 one the like young lean blade um echo uh, record label um just or even i suppose like xl as well just to kind of create a a family of of artists that are are pushing things forward and are are just really really good and and taking that as the the absolute core of what we do so like the music and the art above everything else and the commercialism can come second um and hopefully that and it's not to neglect it and hopefully that can be as successful as 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 it can be um and everything we can you know achieve people's goals and and aspirations but eventually just becoming like a media company like i have friends who are like astounding directors so like i don't know there's there's a part of me that dreams about like one day uh going to see a movie and like it says like columbia pictures and then mcmxcv and then whatever and then the movie, movie starts you know that'd be pretty sick uh, it's looking promising already honestly on the music front um with a couple of the artists we're working with so it's just getting the dominoes in, in place and hoping that uh everything falls like you want it to um just yeah making just the, the coolest shit on on the planet and and i don't know trying to just make it go no i love that i want to take it back to the one of the first questions i asked you like when i asked you what your version of success was when you were younger right it was the stratosphere it was michael jackson stadiums a hundred million records sold um (laughs) how has your version of success for yourself shifted and what is it now this is a an interesting question because you could catch me on different days and i would say different things um today i been making music i've been like in a good mood and i would i would honestly say that like this is success you know i'm absolutely living a dream 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 life uh i'm very comfortable i live very comfortably i get to make music (laughs) like all day if i feel like it or if i don't i don't um i'm not stressed about paying bills i'm not stressed about uh you know when's the next 
project got to be made so I can get the next advance. Uh, I would just like, oh yeah, I guess so like the, what's it, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that triangle of like basic needs and then like aspirationals and blah, 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 self-actualization yeah. and shit. Uh, I guess for me, it's, it, I guess that's kind of what the realization that a couple of months ago is like, why am I forcing myself to make this stuff that's stressing me out? And that I love, but it's stressing me out. Um, I want to make something that is just very, very good. Uh, and in, in, in the way that I create things, so something that's expressive and, and, and feels like itself as an idea and feels like myself as, a, as an artist. Um, and I want it to be just astoundingly good, at least for me. And if, if everyone else calls it shit, then that's fine. But like, for me, I want, I want to make something that, that is astoundingly good. Um, because I already have everything else. I have, I I have an amazing lifestyle. Uh, I make, I do what I love every day. Um, yeah, it's more simple. So, so, so success is, is how do I get this for, 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 artists who don't have it that I think are worthy of being celebrated uh, and are, are, wor are worthy for every single bit of success that they have already and that they could potentially have, you know? Um, you know, if, if I get, if I get Dua Lipa next year, that's <laughs> great. I'm not, well, I'm, it depends. If, as long as I don't sell myself out and have a shit time, like then I'm never going to say no to that, but I'm already a, successful in, uh, in in so many ways and, and I'm absolutely blessed and so thankful for it so I just want to put these resources to good use you know and uh, put put some make some shit with joy in it you know yeah I think that so many people that I've talked to a everybody's idea of success and their own identity within it has shifted from whatever their childhood ideal was to where they're at now. And everybody also, I think, I think that's where like gratitude comes in, right? Because if you're grateful and, and you kind of live this life of gratitude, you, you recognize that whatever platform you have, even if it's not where you want to land, right? Because we're all, I don't know, masochistically ambitious. We're like, we got to keep going. We got to <laughs> yeah, keep working, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. But there's a sense of where I'm at now, I have this platform where I can give back. I give back to my fans. I want to give back to artists who don't know what the fuck they're doing as they're trying to navigate, you know, an industry that is, you know, historically really unfair and, and unnecessarily complicated. And I think that giving back to people and everybody that I've talked to gives back in these different ways. It's like whatever way is the natural way for you to do it. And I think that's so important in a connection that I just made. Yeah. I, well, I mean, the thing is you can't, uh, much like you said on the, the nature of, of online life uh, and discourse in terms of, any somewhat divisive topic uh you're very much put in a box like you're that side of this you're this side of that uh you agree with these people so that means everything you are is over there um 
we are not static things. So next year, if we had a, like if we had this conversation again, and you asked me like, oh, what's your definition of success? I might want to do a lip of myself, and that is completely okay. Yeah. What I feel right now is 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 that I guess what I explained. It, it's it's not about that. Um, the gratitude and ambition and and drive of being an artist is the most confusing thing ever because I can sit here and tell you I'm so so thankful but I do I I would be disappointed if the next thing was worse yeah being human means carrying a lot of contradictory feelings and I think the quicker that we recognize that the the easier maybe existence will be going back to this idea of like we are future bound and there is no future wow that was just yeah. that was a brilliant brilliant wrap up damn oh, God, no. <laughs> anatomy of an artist is a podcast created recorded and edited by me Verita. It was produced by Vanessa Magos with the help of Yesenia Bonilla. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.